in terms of my views, I suppose I I would uh, say that they've come full circle over a, a, a period of about half a century, um, but it, it's not been an enormous circle in, in the sense that I started off as uh, a social democrat in the Labour Party in the early 70s, late 60s, late 60s and early 70s, um, uh, what would have then be called a Gatescalite, I suppose. Um, and uh, uh, in the course of the 70s, uh, the chaos of the 70s and early 80s, partly because of the economics I learned, partly because of my experience at the World Bank, I'd be, uh, and partly because of the stagflationary period, I became um, uh, more convinced of the virtues of markets, um, free trade, uh, and economic liberalization. Uh, then over the succeeding 30 years or so, particularly after the financial crisis, I became somewhat more aware of the risks associated with liberal markets, particularly in finance, and of the problems of rising inequality uh, and the political disorders that were associated with that. And that then uh, led me to back to, I suppose, to where I started, to uh, a more social democratic view, um, a view that uh, uh, emphasize the role of the state in uh, making our economies work, the value of the welfare state and associated assistance to the public at large. And in particular, a renewed emphasis on the role of citizenship as a core political, economic and social value if our democracies are to be sustained. Thank you, Martin. And I think something that's particularly important for us is by having been on a evolutionary journey in terms of your views I think you can help us particularly identify some of the sort of common ground centre ground issues that we're interested in in the podcast. So let's start firstly with an overview. Can you just give us your assessment of the current state of the UK economy which has perhaps been in the news more in recent times than it has for a while? Depends, I suppose, a little on what one means by current. And given my age and uh, the sort of view I tend to think of, take of things, uh, current is sort of, in a way, the last 15 years or so, in the sense that um, we had a really decisive break in the experience of the UK economy and our view of it in the financial crisis and its aftermath. And in particular, though it was clear that the UK was a relatively unequal economy among developed countries, uh, it was one in which, as far as we could see, inequality hadn't got worse after the 1980s. So it's relatively stable compared with the US where it continued to get worse. And the UK over that period had, by comparison with the main continental countries, been somewhat faster growing. It, it, it seemed to be catching up after a long period of falling behind. And so that's 
how we thought about it um, in say 2005 or six or seven. Things have emerged since then, which made pretty clear that that was an over-optimistic view and probably dependent on a number of unsustainable and even accidental developments. Above all, I think the, the vast growth of and the profits in the financial sector, but also one or two other things, the continued profits from the oil sector. And those made productivity growth and real income growth in the UK look stronger than they really were um, on a longer term basis. So since the financial crisis, we've had a long period of very weak overall productivity growth. Uh, we're sort of down there really with Italy at the bottom of the G7. We've had uh, therefore very low real income growth in the country as a whole. Productivity growth is low, so is real income growth. And a lot of the real income growth was generated by the expansion of the labor force through migration rather than rising real GDP per head. We, of course, had the political decision of austerity under the Cameron Osborne period. Uh, and we had the shock of the Brexit referendum and the subsequent Brexit negotiations. Throughout that whole period, producti productivity growth has continued to be very weak. Uh, and with no sign of its returning to the pre-2007 trend. Uh, investment levels have been extraordinarily low. Um, one measure that I looked at, average investment as a share of GDP in the UK was essentially the lowest in Europe, uh, apart from Greece, over the, uh, the, the last 12 years or so. So that's, you can't really grow if you don't invest. Uh, the corporate sector looks very weak. And of course, as a result of Brexit, our trading relations with our most important partners have deteriorated substantially, and that's showing itself up pretty clearly in our trade performance now. Then into that slightly longer term picture, which is, as I said, the what the financial crisis has revealed and, and also what it has created. We've then got the COVID disaster and the recovery and the COVID disaster economically was very deep here. I'm not talking about the number of fatalities, uh, but the economic effects. And we've had really, by comparison with our peers, a very weak recovery uh, um, for a number of reasons. And so um, we would, I think we, one would have to say that the UK has renew, renewed the longish period, the sort of dominant um, story of the post-war period, which is one of slow but uh, definite relative decline compared to our peers in among other developed countries, not dramatic but consistent in terms of real incomes per head. We remain a relatively unequal society, so that means the people at the bottom are really very definitely at the bottom, and we haven't handled the shocks that have hit us all that well, though some temporary actions taken, for instance, during COVID uh, were by the Treasury were really um, quite dramatic and fairly successful in cushioning, cushioning the immediate blow. But the overall picture is the one I've given you of 
relative decline, disappointment, and pretty consistently low trend growth in output per head, innovation, and therefore in the standards of living we can generate for our people. Thank you. Now we'll come on later, if we may, to where we go next and how to potentially tackle some of these issues. But let's just start on the current state of things. Can you just, you mentioned austerity and Brexit. Can you give a little bit of an assessment of their relative importance compared to some of the other factors that you mentioned across that time frame? It's always very, very difficult to disentangle in economics um, what is causing performance, either good or bad, actually. And I would say that the biggest single reason for the disappointment of the post-financial crisis period is that the underlying structure of our economy and its competitive, its areas of strength um, turned out not to uh, work as well as we'd hoped. It's not because of austerity nor because of Brexit, that essentially um, we didn't have a very strong economy. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, as I've indicated, uh, a lot of income um, was generated in our economy by the financial sector and associated professional skills, consulting and so forth, which provided very good livings for admittedly a relatively small proportion of the population, but in aggregate quite a large amount of income, a lot of revenue for the state. Um, and that meant uh, that we could afford um, quite easily a certain level of public spending quite comfortably without very high taxes. We are by the developed country standards, a fairly low tax country, which meant uh, in, in aggregate um, quite reasonable standards of living for a lot of people. But as I've already indicated, a lot of that was an illusion. And we ended up with this very low productivity growth ever since then. And that's far and away the most important feature of our economy, in my view. And it's basically because we're not very strong in the sectors where really fast productivity growth can be generated. And the most important sectors for that are technology, the technology sector. Um, we have no, essentially no world beating technology companies. Uh, we, um, uh, we have no equivalence of what the Americans have been able to generate in the last 20, 25 years. We also have, by comparison with, say, Germany, um, Northern Europe more generally, a really weak and hollowed out manufacturing sector, and that goes back 40 or 50 years. Some would say 100, but that at least is debatable. And those are the sectors where really fast productivity growth could be generated. Uh, ours is a predominantly service-led economy, and apart from financial services, which, as I said, turned out to be a bit of a will of the wisp. Um, it's really hard to generate very rapid growth of productivity in services, particularly more labor intensive services. And that's really just the structure of the economy. And I think it's a, sort of an illusion that people have that, that uh, 
it's simple to change that you know, and that path. I think it's really incredibly difficult. So I would say the starting point is we just don't have a very strong economy. Um, then, of course, we made two decisions which made it worse. Um, after the shock of the crisis and after the realization that the size and growth of our economy was likely to be less than we'd hoped in, say, 2004 or five. And I think that was ineluctable. That's been true basically throughout the entire developed world. Nobody has gone back to the pre-crisis trend, at least none of the big countries. So there was bound to be some austerity somewhere and people were going to be in aggregate less well off than they hoped. But how we did it, uh, the um, imposed, uh, distributed the costs in certain ways. And in particular, uh, I think the austerity policy was too brutal and that reduced the rate of growth of demand and that affected the growth of the economy and supply for quite a few years and arguably ever since. Um, so the macroeconomic squeeze was too brutal in the initial years after the financial crisis, how I did against it at the time. And in addition, it was structured um, in ways that imposed a very large part of the cost on public spending and particularly on the, um, the uh, local authority spending, which uh, but also on other crucial areas, the welfare state, health, education, and so forth. And of course, that affected the living standards of large parts of the population. Um, so the, dis the way we distributed the losses imposed by the financial crisis relative to expectations had large social and economic consequences. Um, among other things, we decided at that time to cut public investment dramatically, and that was, I think, a very serious mistake. Our public investment was already very weak, and that basically continued that into the future. Um, then, just as we were recovering and things were going to back to normal, we decided on Brexit. Uh, going back to normal, I mean, going back to the new normal, we were recovering from the, the post-Brexit post-financial uh, crisis shock, uh, then we had Brexit, and that was a big shock to expectations. Um, it didn't cause the immediate collapse that the Treasury perhaps in a unwisely uh, forecast, because the truth is nobody knew, but it's pretty clear in retrospect that um, it did uh, weaken trade, um, uh, it has uh, added to uncertainty. Uh, it's probably one of the reasons, though it's very difficult to be sure about these things, for the continued very weak investment by the British corporate sector, uh, uh, which I've already discussed, public and private investment have both been very weak. And this probably reinforce the tendency towards very weak productivity growth, which I've already discussed as being the dominant feature of the um, post-financial crisis period. And of course, as I've already emphasized, but I say this in other ways, this has led to an exceptionally slow rise in household real disposable incomes. And as far as one can see, uh, worse than anything in the last century. Um, since that 
period, which explains the um, the malaise the, the 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 sense people have that they're not they're not getting better off, and then of course, COVID uh, and now the shock of the cost of living crisis um, adds further um, negative shocks to that longer term picture. So one thing I wanted to to explore that I, I think is coming into more focus now, and you touched on the some of the sort of historical precedent and the way it's and with the cost of living crisis that seems to have been brought into sort of a shock currently. Do you think that the Bank of England potentially and other central banks, but let's just focus on the UK for now. Do you think that central banks have got it right and are getting it right? We can come back to sort of uh, what we should do next in the future or sort of shortly but for now do you think that they have got it right and are currently getting it right i think the honest answer to that has to be we have no idea um the uh, uh we are in a again in a period of uh extreme macroeconomic turmoil uh, the, um, the, the previous periods of extreme macroeconomic turmoil uh, were the 70s, um, where we had huge terms of trade shocks and very high inflation. If I remember correctly, inflation in the UK peaked at close to 25% in, I think, uh, 76. It's about then anyway. Um, and uh, so it was a cost of living crisis and a half. And then the second period of macroeconomic uh, crisis, very different, was the financial crisis, which I've already been talking about, so, so say 2007 to 10, and its aftermath. And we're in another period of macroeconomic crisis. And here it's been a succession. We've had the COVID shock, which generated the biggest downturns in uh, uh, in our economy, um, I think, ever recorded, certainly in peacetime, um, and globally the most widely shared recession ever, at least as on the statistics we haven't been able to estimate. So there was a huge COVID recession from which most countries, including this, we've have not fully recovered in the sense we haven't got back to the pre-crisis trends and they were already weak ones as i've already discussed then as we came out of covid we had this huge surge in prices worldwide uh including here of course because of supply constraints in the context of very strong global aggregate demand um driven uh, by very strongly supported monetary and fiscal policy, uh, especially in the US, but not uniquely in the US. And then we got the Ukraine-Russia war, the invasion of Ukraine, which has added further turmoil to energy markets and of course food markets and, and made uh, the cost of living crisis much worse. If you think of inflation as cost of living crisis, it's just the inflation environment combined with negative terms of trade shock because we're a net importer of these commodities. Now, in, in that context, it's immensely difficult to be sure whether the central banks have got it right or got it wrong. 
Um, my view tends to be that in general, their monetary policies remained too expansionary for too long. They should have begun to normalize them in 2021. So at the beginning of last year, certainly by the middle of last year, they should have done so slowly. They should probably have ended the purchase of assets quite a while ago. And if they had done this, uh, it might be the case, but it can't be sure that the inflationary pressures will be less dramatic than they are now. Of course, the downside of that is that the recoveries would have been weaker. And instead of having very low unemployment as we have, we would have substantially higher unemployment. Uh, but in second guessing central banks, and I'm inclined to think what I've just said, it has to be stressed that throughout this period, the last last three years in particular, reading the, the economic signs has been almost impossible because we've been consistently out of prior some outside the previous samples. An experience of a pandemic in this context is in the current modern context is completely novel. Uh, the last time we had a pandemic was 100 years ago and there wasn't macroeconomic policy in the same sense then. And of course, the supply shocks created by that, the supply constraints created by that were completely unknown and unpredictable. Nobody knew what would happen and everybody was surprised. The pattern of consumption that came out of that was again a surprise, this very heavy concentration on goods as opposed to services. Maybe people should have worked that out, but they didn't. The labor market has behaved in ways that were completely unexpected in the sense that a lot of people seem to have left the labor market, particularly in the UK and the US. Nobody fully understands why and nobody certainly forecast it. So central banks have had to judge their monetary policy. And the same is true about fiscal policy, but that's less sort of dealing with the day-to-day -day changes in economies in the short term, short to medium term. But central banks have had to make their judgments in a period of wild uncertainty and huge problems in working out um, uh, what's going on. And of course, they made mistakes. And one can't even be sure um, what those mistakes were. In, in a sense, we never will, because we will never be able to run the counterfactuals. So I would say, for all these reasons, it's really impossible to say whether they got it right or wrong. But what is certain is they got themselves into a very, very difficult position. And the difficult position is they got very high unemployment, uh, sorry, very high inflation uh, by historical standards, way above their targets. Um, you know, maybe 11% in the UK is coming and the target is two. So that's pretty wild. Uh, higher inflation than at any period since uh, the early 80s. Uh, so that's more than 40 years. And at the same time, uh, they want to keep demand strong. They want to pull the people who left the labor market back into employment. They don't want to generate lots of unemployment because they're well aware how weak growth was before the crisis. They don't want to create another huge recession if they can avoid it. And they don't know how to make this balancing act work. And 
again, part of the reason they don't know that is they don't know how quickly all these supply constraints, which we see in the world system, world economic system, will disappear in energy, in food, and in other goods. Um, and part of that is because it depends on what happens with the war, and part of it is because we don't know whether um, the COVID effects are going to disappear soon. So it's an immensely difficult task that they face, and almost certainly whatever they do is going to look wrong because the outcome will be not one that, on balance, the public wants. They want a strong economy with low inflation, and the chances are they're not going to have that. Thank you. So I think now is probably a good time to move on to um, some more of the political aspects of this. And uh, Steve, my uh, fellow podcaster, has joined us now. So I'll pass over to Steve to ask some of the, the questions and to get your interpretation of some of the, the politics of the economics that we might see as things are now and going forward. So welcome, Steve. Thanks, Martin. And um, Martin Wolf, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm very sorry that uh, I had to join uh, a little bit late. Um, so we'll move on to the politics stuff. And, and I, I have managed to listen to the last few minutes. Uh, and it, it sounds like you're outlining some pretty profound challenges for the economy. So what I'm interested to know is how you think the, the sort of political ideas um, in the UK particularly, but more broadly, if, if you like, uh, are measuring up to that. So what is your assessment of the economic policies and outlook of the main parties? Um, perhaps we can start with the government and move from there. I would say um, that they have more or less given up. In, I mean, think one of the things that I've learned, which is sort of the way I think of things now, is that... Um, what I thought politics was about um, has ceased to be what it's about in most developed countries, but very particularly here and in the US. Also, as we can see now, very much in France, too, um, and actually in other developed countries. What do I mean by that? So in the period up to, let's say, even the early 2000s, I would say, so from the Second World War to the 2000s, the debate was focused on economic policy in a modestly technocratic manner. There were some ideological elements, you know, are you pro-market, less pro-market, and all the rest of it. But the dominant questions were, what policies should you pursue to promote growth, promote employment, raise incomes, uh, affect distribution of incomes, uh, uh, provide basic welfare services. And the debate was, well, what are the trade-offs among these things? Uh, if you're somewhat more conservative, you'd say incentives, lower taxes, and so forth. Privatization will generate faster growth. That will generate more revenue. We've got a sound economy that will allow us to to fund services better. And on the left, they would probably say, well, more government intervention or the rest of it will do better. We can raise taxes a bit and so forth. The, the debate was, as it were, a debate within a sort of parameters largely set 
by economic and social concerns which are relatively clear. In the last 20 years or so, perhaps it goes further back, I would say, and I think it's probably led by the US, but it's obviously important here. What I think of as very broadly identity, cultural uh, um, issues have become more important. Nationalism has become more important. Immigration has become a much bigger political issue. And that's of course, partly related to the fact that there was more of it, but not just to that. Um, political parties have started to change their, um, their, their coalitions very profoundly as a result. I think the coalitions of that, that formed the support for center-left parties and center-right parties in terms of class have been transformed. Uh, and that's a, a significant to that cannot be exaggerated. We have, in addition, a profound change in the composition of our society in a number of dimensions of the one that I think is least emphasized, but I think is incredibly important, is the rise of the proportion of the population that have been to university and the cultural and social attitudes and expectations associated with that. So I think that our debate on politics, what are political issues and how to deal with it has changed utterly. And we followed the Americans though in a rather different way into a, into a political discussion which shies away from economics, partly because the background is so depressing on economics and partly because no party really has any clear idea what it wants to offer because it doesn't know what would work. And increasingly onto social and cultural dimensions um, in which my perspective is that by and large, the center right and right are doing better than the center left and left that as a political proposition. Um, and since that's the case, the centre-right keeps on and right keeps on returning to the social and cultural elements. I'll give you one example, every time this government is in trouble, it starts stoking up friction with the EU again, which sort of reminds people of the, the, the Brexit issue as a cultural uh, a cultural and political issue rather than the economic one. Again, every time uh, there seem to be problems, it stokes up immigration issues, though they are trivial and peripheral, peripheral ones in any meaningful sense. So I think the whole basis of politics has transformed. And I think the core reason for that is uh, the failure to articulate the economic debate in a way that meshes with the concern of most people and the emergence of new coalitions in our society, which don't divide neatly on economic um, policy lines. And I think it's a very profound transformation of our politics. And I think it's unambiguously for the worse uh, because it makes it very difficult for us to govern ourselves well in terms of economic policy. And in addition, it makes it very difficult for us to feel as a society 
that we sh that what we share is stronger than what divides us um, because it basically we are pursuing social um, and cultural division as a main platform of our of our politics that just emphasizes from a daily basis all our divisions. I was going to follow up and ask you about where you thought the, the centre ground was in all this in, in political opinion, but it sounds like from what you've said, there probably isn't much there to go on. So I might ask you a different question, actually. If, if there aren't ideas coming from politicians at the moment, are there ideas coming from other parts of the world, such as economists, about what a future economic policy should look like? Is there kind of a, a centre of gravity on that uh, body of opinion? I think the answer is... And I don't want to, by the way, I don't want to rule out the possibility. I've just completed a book which sort of emphasizes the optimism, though I'm less optimistic now than I was when I was writing it, the optimism that we could return to the sort of debate we had 20, 30, 40 years ago with a slightly more uh, imaginative view of what that, that would involve. So if you like, a new form of social democracy or I might say social market economy, which is also been successful um, and getting away from the, the cultural identity aspects of our politics. So I, I would hope we can do this because I don't think societies could be successful uh, as societies if the politics are really oriented about around Dog whistles, dog whistles, as they call them in America, uh, ways of mobilizing hatred for from one part of society for other parts of society on a on a cultural basis. I mean, these are things you really can't uh, compromise on very easily, uh, as you can on e economic policies, where it's more technocratic and it can be more about. Well, we all agree we need to spend more on health, and we need to have a better health service. So. What are the package of things we need to do to make it work better? That's at least a sort of relatively pragmatic, technocratic discussion. Uh, and I think much more fruitful and also more valuable. So that's what I was pushing for. I'd like to go back to that. Now, the, I think there are quite a few things we could try to do uh, to move in that direction, uh, which would orient around uh, making economies um, more competitive, less monopolistic than they are now, uh, improving education and training in, in really quite a big way, raising uh, investment, both private and public, subs substantially, putting real funding behind the levelling up agenda and making that go along with really serious devolution uh, to, I believe, very strongly in devolving power to local levels of government um, to work out to some significant extent their own agendas. I think putting a lot of money into science uh, um, and uh, research and development, both public and private, of course, maintaining our contributions in and participation in all the major European programs like Horizon and so forth. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of things we can do to make our economy work better. I think there's a lot we can do to make our social services better. My own view is that taxes on average have to rise and we should accept that. And obviously the better off need to pay for that. Uh, you know, 
I think the sort of level of taxation we see in the Netherlands, which is a more prosperous society than ours, it's not, it's not dramatic, but it's significant, maybe five percentage points of GDP or so. I think that could make a lot of difference if done properly. So I think there are lots of things we could do. It would, of course, involve very difficult and painful trade-offs and choices and a much more honest public debate than we ever have on any of these things. And of course, it would involve, if not reversing Brexit, at least trying to have the best possible deal on trade with the EU and, uh, and trying to make it stable so we don't put it under threat every minute. Uh, now, this is what I'm outlining is an unimaginable politics right now. Uh, it's not, nobody on the left seems to dare to say any of these sorts of things, probably because they think they will be wiped out. And obviously the right doesn't want to say any of these things because it doesn't really believe in them. And so we're stuck where we are. Uh, uh, and I think the, the time when Labour did decide to go really radical, which was under Corbyn, the policies were really very ill thought out and incoherent. So I basically come to the view there are ideas, there are perfectly sensible things we can do. They will be really quite an upheaval, but they're not within the frame of the political debate as it now exists. Nobody is prepared to address them. And because the economy works badly, nobody really has anything they want to say on that. So we constantly get stuck in this completely futile, self-destructive set of dog whistle debates, culture debates on which we make no progress, I think, and which divide us madly. Uh, uh, as we can see. So I, I can imagine another politics. I've discussed this in my book. I discussed why it's important because I think the future of democracy itself is at stake. If democratic governments can't provide decent government for the best, better part of their people, which means prosperity, security, stability, then I think democracy itself comes into question and we shouldn't be complacent about it. But I don't know because I'm not really brilliant enough to understand it, how you get our political debate to move into this sort of territory again. Thank you, Marcy. I just wanted to, to pick up on something related, that you've, you've spoken about the, uh, the current government's economic, uh, let's say, policy. You've spoken about the, um, the opposition and their, essentially their fear, it seems to me, of um, putting forward some controversial or radical opinions. You've previously said that Rishi Sunak, who perhaps at the time that you wrote it was more fav looked more likely to become the next prime minister. You've, you said that he offered warmed up factorism, but that that was uh, insufficient for our needs. So what did you mean by that? You've touched on some of the things that you'd like offered as a replacement instead, but is there anything else specifically around uh, warmed up Thatcherism that you wanted to cover? I think there is a strand in the Conservative Party um, which goes back to the 80s, which thinks that both politically and economically, the solution is to carry through what they think of as the Thatcherite revolution, which is to move radically towards a small state low tax, free market, ultra deregulated economy. Um, 
which is sometimes called Singapore on Thames. Uh, and I think that Sunak came quite close to indicating his desire to be seen as part of that group. Though I suspect he's too intelligent to believe that really a credible policy for our country. Um, but uh, it is very clearly an important strand in the Conservative Party, and it was an important strand of the Brexiters. And my view is, um, well, very bluntly, Singapore is an irrelevant model, and in any case, they don't understand Singapore. Uh, second, that a small state deregulated economy is completely politically inconceivable in Britain and therefore irrelevant. And third, if it were achievable, it quite certainly wouldn't work uh, because the problems of generating rapid growth in a high income country require something much more sophisticated than that. And I think of this as being able to um, combine market incentives and the innovation associated with markets and competition in markets, so I believe in market economics, with very high levels of government investment in physical capital, in people, human skills and so forth, in research and development, in science, uh, and uh, as I already indicated, uh, in the in enabling regions of our country to make plans and uh, undertake um, development programs of their own, because I believe in that diversity. That would require substantial government resources. And this also requires quite a bit of reform of fundamental features of our economy, like the tax system, um, tax incentives for corporate investment, like the functioning of our capital markets, which I think are highly defective. And I think we've made, for example, a tremendous mess of our pension systems. There is a lot of complicated and important policy that needs to be changed, which can't be delivered just by saying, well, we're going to get rid of the government and we're going to cut taxes. There's absolutely no reason to suppose, in my view, that that would work. And what I've was concerned about in Rishi's formulation, in Sunak's formulation, was that it sort of didn't really say much about all the agenda, the whole agenda of government, what, what role it plays in all this. What would a pro-growth, proactive government look like? How would it be funded? What would it have to do? The strong impression he gave, though he emphasize the need for higher investment, more productivity growth, more skills. But the dominant thrust was that if we get the government out of the way, deregulate, cut taxes and so forth, we're sort of going to get all that. And I just don't think that's true. So I think that the, the countries we have to learn from are the more successful developed countries and in their different way, Northern European countries and also in the US respects, particularly the way America has created conglomerations, uh, agglomerations of 
new business like Silicon Valley and so forth. These are all the things we can learn and these, those are going to have to be the models we follow. And what I would like to see intelligent debate on economics in this country being about, well, how best can we reform what we've got to become like the more successful European countries? And what can we learn from the US as well? Clearly has a very powerful economy along with many weaknesses. And what does that mean for how we structure our state and how we, what sort of tax system we have? And so that's what I would like to look for. And I, I think Sunak is smart enough to see that's the way the centre-right should go. And I think it's the, it's the way um, Labour should see itself and they would come up with different answers. That's fine. Um, but in the hope of getting a consensus on a more proactive view of the state without, of course, you know, you know, getting rid in any way of, of a market economy. Um, and that's the challenge to me. That, and it's a challenge for all the developed countries. What makes it so difficult is, and I can't go into this now, I do genuinely think that the opportunities for us now are not the sort of opportunities we had 50, 60 years ago. The economic um, engine we've got is not a very strong one. Many of the opportunities are difficult to exploit. Uh, and so we have to be realistic. I would like us to start by a serious assessment, which I think the government should undertake. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What can we build on? What can we do? If you ask, what does the government's plan in that those respects? The answer, there is none. And if you ask the opposition, what is the opposition's vision of the future of our country in its economic aspects? And what does it think we should do about it? There isn't one. And that's what as a country we should be focusing on, because that's what we all share. That's incredibly fascinating. Thank you. Uh, you preempted this a little bit, but um, I think we've heard your advice for Rishi Sunak. But I'm wondering what if anything, you would say differently to the more left-leaning party. So if we had Rachel Reeves, for example, um, uh, what would you advise them to think about and focusing on, if, if anything different from, from the centre-right? Well, I think inevitably and properly, the centre-left needs to emphasise um, naturally even more the role of the state, which should be willing to spend more. And that's part of its calling card. Uh, and it should talk about what it wants to spend more on and how it would help the economy and people. And it, it needs to argue for why it's in the benefit, in the interest of everybody to invest in the population as a whole. Um, for example, uh, it seems to me that the case for, for dealing with child poverty from a social point of view, everybody's point of view, not just the centre-left, uh, the Labour Party. The case is not just that it's right, which is, I don't think, difficult to accept, it obviously is, but that actually it is enormously in all our interest that every child will be adequately fed, clothed, educated, stimulated, so that we have a, the highest possible quality population. Uh, of people able to take advantage of opportunities in in uh, a modern economy. Um, I think there are in the field of education, also in the field of health, where I think we haven't really, really taken on seriously. A lot of people have made 
this point. I mean, if we think about um, health issues, of course, there are the crisis issues which hit our hospitals and we have pandemics. But lots of people who know much more about this than I do would say, well, we don't have a very healthy population. We have a lot of obesity. We have a lot of the diseases associated with obesity. The, the poorer parts of our population have far lower life expectancy, which is bad in itself and bad for, the, um, for our society and our, though I don't want to emphasize this too much, our economy. So um, the areas of social policy, which are also areas of economic policy, which can be naturally be emphasized uh, by a centre-left party. I think the, the levelling up devolution agenda is one the centre-left should take up with enthusiasm, um, partly to get away from the idea that they're always about centralization. Uh, I think that's, I have a strong ideas about how it should be constructive, but I think that should be an important agenda for them. The financing of local authorities immediately arises. Our, the funding of local authorities in our country through the council tax, otherwise centralized grants is grotesque. We need a much more decentralized tax system. Uh, we need local taxes so that local authority can raise their own taxes. The property tax system in our country is ridiculous. Inheritance and capital taxes on wealth need to be completely reconsidered. The inheritance tax is a joke in this country. I could go on and on and on. There are an immense number of interesting policy areas which have importance for government revenue, for justice, for efficiency, which a thoughtful centre-left party could put forward. Now, I do understand that as soon as they discuss any of these things, they will, you know, there will be a ton of bricks falling down upon them from the media, and they will be frightened, and they won't say any of these things. And uh, I think that's understandable, but it means that a very large range of really important issues for the future never discussed, because they're too frightened. And in my view, the, the, uh, they're fright too frightened to raise really important issues, and they could go on with many more, while the centre-right has basically given up on economic policy, I think. And uh, in any sense, beyond endlessly repeating um, sort of very outworn Thatcherite slogans, which I thought I think were relevant in the 80s, but are no longer really where we should be going. Thank you, Martin. So we've talked recent in the most recent part of this pod around some of the longer term things and what's for the future. But I just want to bring things to a close by focusing on the problem we have right now, which is the inflation crisis as, and the cost of living crisis obviously related. So given all that we've just discussed, what should both sides support to tackle inflation right now? And can it be done? whilst avoiding significant unemployment as the history of our country, and we've talked about Thatcher, um, but the history of the country is tackling inflation and creating a large amount of unemployment. Can that be avoided? And what should both parties be supporting to tackle inflation and the cost of living crisis? Well, uh, it's an immensely difficult thing. So, there's, there's nothing we can do in this country about world prices, which are a big part of it. 
So we can't control oil prices, or prices of gas, prices of food, or prices of chips, uh, semiconductor chips, I mean, um, or potato chips, or any of these things. We can't control any of it. They're just given. And they've shifted against us dramatically. And we can hope, we can hope, as the optimists say, and I hope this very much, these prices will go back down again soon. Uh, it's not impossible that they will stop rising in any case, and that they, um, and it is possible that they will start falling quite soon, and we will be very happy if that happens. Um, that's, that's to be hopeful, but there's nothing we can do about it. What the, the, the uh, central bank wants to do, or policymakers want to do, is to ensure uh, that these rising prices, which lower the real incomes of people in this country, because their prices of imports relative to our exports have risen, that we've got a loss of real income. Well, somebody has to lose that income. And I think it's important that by and large, if we can, the people who lose that real income are the relatively well off. And that's not going to happen naturally, because naturally the people who are going to lose their income in this are going to be the relatively poor, because they're the people who spend more of their income on energy and food. They're pretty straightforward. They're going to be hit more. So uh, I have been arguing that we should have a welfare, a wealth, uh, uh, um, a windfall tax. And, uh, and that we should be using the proceeds of the windfall tax to support the more vulnerable uh, parts of our society um, through this shock. I'm not completely convinced at all that we should be subsidizing the prices of uh, particular petrol, um, even of energy, though here, it gets more difficult. I won't go into some of the technical aspects of that because I still want the incentives for, for energy saving to go through. Um, with the food, however, you might argue that there's a case for subsidizing some form, some parts of food. Uh, that's a more complicated issue. But anyway, there's a distributional question there. Who suffers the loss because we've got real losses? Then, in the labor market, we want to avoid a wage price spiral in the sense that if the higher prices now are responded to by higher wages, then the combination of the higher prices, the higher wages work through the whole economy to generate high inflation of everything, then the only way you can stop this process in which you've got a, this spiral of higher prices leading to higher wages, leading to higher prices indefinitely, is to have massive, a massive recession. We haven't got to that point yet because wages haven't really started to rise in that way. And it is quite important for policymakers to make this a one-off, not to allow what is called by economists second and third round effects, so that inflation becomes completely accepted and expected in the economy. And that means doesn't necessarily mean high unemployment as long as it's credible that we, that the central bank will not permit will at react if we start seeing this wage price spiral emerge. So ineluctably, though, what the government, the central 
of the Bank of England said was very unpolitic when he said, well, wages should rise. Uh, it sort of basically is correct that domestic prices and wages mustn't try to keep pace with these in international prices because then we are in a spiral. And once we're in that spiral, they will end up by having to impose a massive tightening. And that will be brutal. And we really want to avoid that. We have to hope that the tightening they inject is sufficiently credible and significant. And I don't think they're there yet at all, but they could get there, I think, without huge difficulty. That people understand that this second and third round will not be tolerated, will have terrible effects on the economy. And that with luck, this in, the external inflation we're experiencing will stabilize or even reverse. And then we will have got through it with a minimum of costs to our society, provided, as I've already stressed, we cushion to the greatest possible extent the more vulnerable parts of our society and cushion the prices, I think, particularly of food more than energy, but to some extent also home heating, which is the other really sensitive area. Now, you're asking me, is that possible? Is what I've described? this combination of accepting the real losses, cushioning the vulnerable, cushioning some of the prices and preventing the spiral, is that possible? The answer I think is that it is possible. I don't, it's certainly, I don't think it's probable. Uh, it's very difficult, but given that we have a very long experience of low inf moderate inflation, it is possible this can be done, provided we are reasonably successful in preventing the spiral over the next year or so. And once it goes beyond a year, we get two, three or four years of inflation at this sort of rate, then I think it really becomes difficult to avoid something more brutal. So the next few months, year will, will show us, and it depends very much on the Bank of England. My own view is that Bank of England has not tightened enough yet. Um, I hope I'm wrong, and I would stress that this is a matter of judgment. It's an art, not a science. But the way I framed it is broadly how most economists, I think, think about this a lot, would frame the issue. And uh, as I said, uh, it's a long explanation. I would say it's possible we could avoid this endless spiral, and it's possible it will all go back down and back to where we were, particularly the war ends soon, but that doesn't seem likely. But it's going to be very, very difficult, and uh, it's very difficult to see how we can avoid at least some quite real pain in our society. You asked all the right questions. Unfortunately, we don't, as you probably realize, have very good answers, and I'm afraid I have become, as perhaps this is age hitting me, very pessimistic about our ability of our politics on both left and right at the moment to rise to the occasion. I finished the book, it will be out in January, but published by Penguin. It's called, and you will understand why, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Thank you, Martin. It's quite a sobering note to end on, but an enormously informed, informative, and thorough coverage of the, the economic situation. And I've say thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us because that has been superb so martin wolf thank you very much great pleasure thank you very much steve 
as always, thank you very much. Thank you both. It's been fascinating. Thank you to our listeners. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. Goodbye and hope to see you next time.